welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Mycophenolic acid and its prodrug, mycophenolate mofetil, or MMF, have been key partners to calcineurin inhibitors and solid organ transplant immunosuppressant regimens. MMF was originally approved as a fixed-dose regimen, but now multiple researchers have explored the role of therapeutic drug monitoring of this medication. One of Mayo Clinic's transplant pharmacology experts, Dr. Tanner Melton, is here to review the literature behind the International Association of Therapeutic Drug Monitoring and Clinical Toxicology Consensus Report, and to outline the role of mycophenolate monitoring in solid organ transplant recipients. So the precision medicine of transplant pharmacotherapy has been an artful balance of immunosuppression uh, management to prevent rejections, as well as balancing the decreased risk of infection. For decades now, though, we've been treating mycophenolate as a one-size-fits-all approach, giving everyone somewhere between 750 milligrams and 1,000 milligrams twice a day. However, with medications like cyclosporin and tacrolimus, we regularly monitor those levels and adjust accordingly. So it behooves us as practitioners to constantly revisit our practices and question what we're doing and question the status quo. So for today, we're going to discuss, go through that and discuss the PK and pharmacodynamics of mycophenolate, going over strategies to monitor it, and then develop a monitoring plan for a specific patient. For today, we will focus primarily on a kidney transplant recipient, as there is not enough time to go over all the literature for all the organ options. But rest assured, everything we discussed today will be similar across all the groups. So let's meet our, for our patient for today. We walk into the clinic and we see KN, who is our 40-year-old female with a kidney transplant four months ago. Her past medical history is notable for hypertension and GERD. And today she's here for a protocol biopsy that's showing a acute cellular rejection with a BAMF grade of 2B. Her current regimen, which might be mindful, this is a lot smaller than you would expect for a normal transplant recipient. Um, but we'll go with it for today, is tacrolimus, mycophenolate mofetil, sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim, or Bactrim as I'll refer to for the rest of the presentation, amlodipine, and pantoprazole. So before we really dive into her current medications, we need to address this acute rejection. And when we're doing that, our options are generally corticosteroids, thymoglobulin, and if it's a really bad, salvage therapy. And this is where our BAMF grading, that 2B that we had earlier, becomes important. By being at a BAMF grade of 2, we're looking at using thymoglobulin to pretty much knock out the immune system and get her back on track so that we can optimize her uh, immunosuppression maintenance regimen. And with that, we have a long time now since thymoglobulin can last for months on end before having a rebound in your white blood cells. So we can look at her maintenance regimen and really optimize it to its peak performance. So when we're looking at a normal maintenance, maintenance regimen, we're looking at calcineurin inhibitors, anti-metabolites and corticosteroids as our three-pronged approach for most patients. And we see that in kidney, liver, and heart transplant recipients in particular, with over well over 80% of patients being discharged from the hospital on both tacrolimus and mycophenolate, and then somewhere between 60 and 80% leaving on corticosteroids. So when we discuss this with the team, we've decided, all right, we'll do the, the thymoglobulin and 
corticosteroids and will increase your tacrolimus. But now we want to optimize for mycophenolate because we know that it's an important part of this. And instead of just increasing the dose and hoping for the best, let's take some time. Let's look at that pharmacokinetics, the pharmacokinetics of mycophenolate and see if we can learn more about it and truly optimize it and individualize it for our patient. So using mycophenolate mofetil for today, since that was our most common one used, when that gets taken orally, it is rapidly, rapidly converted into mycophenolic acid or MPA and absorbed almost completely into our vascular into our vascular space. And you'll see on the right and a mycophenolic acid concentration to time curve with a very quick and very full absorption profile. So that's our absorption phase. And then once it's in our intravascular space, mycophenolic acid will bind to over 90% of uh, albumin. Eventually it'll make its way into the liver. And at this point we'll go through an elimination phase, which is about a 17 hour half-life for, for mycophenolic acid. At this point, it'll get converted into multiple metabolites, the primary of which is MPAG, which is a glucuronide formulation of MPA. This is important because MPAG is renally excreted, but also can bind to albumin with about an 80% affinity. So focusing on this one, MPAG can also end up going to the, getting excreted into the bile. Now, this is interesting because when it gets into the bile, there are enzymes present that come from bacteria in our gut that can convert it back into MPA. Now, when that happens, the next time our bile is released, we can get another release of MPA into our GI tract and get a second little miniature dose. So what this creates is what you'll see in green on the right-hand side is a second peak, which is called enterohepatic recycling. And this can account for up to 40% of an exposure or area under the curve for mycophenolate uh, moving forward. So with all those moving parts, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. So right off the top, we have two different formulations, mycophenolate mofetil and mycophenolate sodium. In terms of exposure, there's actually no difference. What we will see a difference in, though, is the rate of absorption. It's a little bit slower with the mycophenolate sodium because it is an enteric-coated formulation, but the overall exposure is not any different. So we don't have too much to worry about there. When we look at patients at the extremes of weight, so think less than 50 kilograms or more than 150 kilograms, we'll start to have some changes in clearance because of the altered volumes of distribution, and that'll change our exposure as well. And then with renal dysfunction or renal um, injuries, we'll have a retention of MPAG since it is primarily cleared by the kidneys. And with this retention, we have more binding to albumin, which will dis dislocate some of our MPA. And this means we'll have, from that point, increased exposure, but also with a retention of MPAG, we'll have more available to get go through that enterohepatic recycling process. So therefore, our second dose can be a little bit larger. With something like liver dysfunction, we're thinking about hypoalbuminemia, there's less protein for the MPA to bind to, so the free-floating MPA can get cleared a little bit faster, and we'll end up having a decreased exposure overall. And there are actually some ethnic considerations with mycophenolate, in particular patients of Af uh, African descent do have a noted increased requirement of mycophenolate. And this is thought to be due to a decrease in terahepatic recycling and an increased clearance of mycophenolate. And this has been on and off in literature, but this is kind of the current understanding at this point. And in terms of GI abnormalities, we're usually thinking of some kind of inflammation or disruption that would decrease absorption. So we'll have a decreased exposure there as well. And being practitioners, we can never forget our lovely drug-drug interactions. 
So we can organize these into three groups, absorption, excretion, and enteropatic recycling. With the absorption phase, we're usually looking at something that'll eliminate the acidic environment that mycophenolate mofetel prefers for when getting absorbed, or something can bind up our mycophenolate itself. So the big drug that we want to look out for is something like a proton pump inhibitor, such as pantoprazole, lansoprazole, what have you, because these will increase our pH more than other medications. And a lot of our transplant patients will end up having this medication on their profiles for a variety of different reasons. At the excretion phase, we're thinking about something that'll inhibit tubular secretion of our, micro, our MPAG. So classic one would be probenicid in this case. And one that's kind of unique to mycophenolate is enterohepatic recycling. So our two main medications we're gonna look at is cyclosporin, which prevents the secretion of MPAG into the bile. So that way you don't have more conversion of that into MPA and a complete loss of that uh, second peak. And then interestingly with antimicrobial exposure, when we have therapeutic antibiotics being used to treat infection, the alteration in the gut flora has the potential to alter the enzymes that are available in the bile to convert MPAG into MPA. And that can alter our secondary peak as well and decrease our exposure. And of course, if this wasn't complicated enough, our patients have changes in exposure over time just naturally. So in particular, if you look at the first about 60 days on this time curve, you'll notice naturally there's an increase in exposure of MPA in all of these patients, whether other onticrolimus or cyclosporin. This is not fully understood, but the working assumption at this point is that this is showing an accumulation of mycophenolate under the conditions of returning organ function, changes in nutrition, changes in drug profiles. So there's a lot of different things that are moving around in this time, which creates a lot of intrapatient variability upfront when we're trying to get these doses situated. Because then after this point, we do see a balance out, and this is usually when we're assuming the organs are resuming to normal function. So now that we've kind of covered all that, let's go back to KN. So she's four months post-transplant. Let's assume she's of average body size and normal body habitus. She's on tacrolimus, mycophenolate, mofetil, a prophylactic dose of Bactrim, amlodipine, and pentoprazole, and no other significant comorbidities. So it takes us to our first question. Uh, if you have your phones, please pull those out now. And this is gonna be a click on the picture. Which part of this cycle do you think for KN is having her pharmacokinetics altered based on what we've talked about so far? All right, as the answers are coming in, we'll go over them. So the intent of this question was to drive home that her absorption is being altered primarily by the use of the pantoprazole as it would be increasing the pH of her GI tract and therefore potentially in reducing the absorption of her mycophenolate. Volume distribution is not a con necessarily a concern here as her body weight is of normal size. And as we've talked about, the main thing that we discussed would have been the body habitus changing the volume distribution. Elimination could have been a concern, but if her she had longstanding CKD, but given that she is in, a, in the middle of a rejection and it was found on biopsy, we don't know if she's currently having an increase in creatinine and if she is having a retention or if there's some other methodology to this. And then lastly, for the enterohepatic recycling, she's not on cyclosporin or any therapeutic levels of antibiotics that really should be altering the enterohepatic recycling at this stage. So now we've heard the pharmacokinetics, let's meet back up with our team via our secure chat. And now we want to know what's the optimal way to measure this exposure. So we have this understanding that there's an exposure with this two peaks. How do we measure it? This is kind of complicated. 
our current working methods, the oldest one has been a limited sampling strategy via the trapezoidal rule. So you just pick a couple points, use geometry, draw a bunch of trapezoids, and calculate the area under that curve. As you'll see on the chart in the bottom left, this can be a very gross over or underestimation depending on where you're at in the curve, which can make calculating true exposure very difficult. So one way, one way around this, get more points. That's always a good thing to do, just try and better understand the exposure. Eventually you'll get enough points that you just turn into what's called continuous monitoring, where you do your best to capture the entire exposure with a ton of points. However, this is very costly and time intensive. For mycophenolate, which has a 12 hour dosing interval, that patient would have to sit there for 12 hours getting a bunch of samples and that's just not feasible nowadays. So we have limited sampling strategies that try to do this via a calculator. So if we can do a few points and calculate or extrapolate to the proper measured AUC, let's do it. And a lot of medications, something like sacrolimus, that's using a peak to assess its exposure. However, we have two peaks here. So we have, or we have two peaks in the normal PK parameters here. So maybe a trough won't do as well. So our calculators we're going to look at today is a limited sampling strategy with a multiple linear regression, and then the same with a Bayesian calculator. Multiple linear regression calculators are nice because they can be run out of something as simple as Excel. They have the potential to be very accurate. However, they are more restrictive in terms of sample draws. So if you're off by an hour or more, or just any deviation from when the sample should be drawn, your estimation is going to be off using a multiple linear regression calculator. Bayesian calculators attempt to solve this problem by being a little bit more flexible with the sample draw timing. And they can have the potential to even be a little bit more accurate because they're these very fancy calculators that can take a lot of parameters into effect. But their main drawback is access. So if your facility doesn't have access to a Bayesian calculator, you're going to be stuck using a multiple linear regression calculator anyway. And for both of these, they are useless unless we have a validated population to base this equation off of. In this case, we do have some calculators. So our first one was a multiple linear regression calculator made by Pavinsky and team in 2002. And this was based on patients with mycophenolate intercrolimus. So they got a 50 AUC profiles and then did individual sampling strategies to try and create calculators to best predict the measured AUC from a few points. What they found was using a, simple, a single point, like a trough or two hours post-dose point, had very low R-squared values, no more than 0.43, and had less than just less than 40% of their patients really were within 15% of the true measured AUC. So they're not very accurate, and they had a lot of error. So we ended up not using single points for this calculator. Moving into two-point sampling, so a trough in one or two hours, we see a slight improvement in the R-squared predictive value going up to 0.793. But we still have about 50% 50 50 of patients not falling within that plus or minus 15% range. When we jump up to using three samples, though, something along the lines of zero at so trough, half an hour, and two hours post dose, we get an R squared of 0.862, and 82% of our subjects are within that 15% of our measured value. And this was the optimal calculator that they found in their study. And this is one that's been used by multiple studies since then for patients on both that are on mycophenolate intercrolimus. Now to give both our cyclosporin patients and our Bayesian calculator lovers some attention. Pramod and their group in France made a Bayesian calculator based on, like I said, mycophenolate and cyclosporin patients. 
they take a slightly different approach in that they try to have a calculator that would be true at multiple time points through the course of a year, taking into account that intra-patient variability over time. And what they did is either a three a sample, a set of three samples or a set of four samples. So they never really assessed just a trough or two points. What they found was using something along the lines of 20 minutes, one hour, and three hours, while it wasn't the most predictive upfront, retained its predictive value and it's had the least error over the course of an entire year compared to something with a trough, one hour, three hours, and six hours, which was fairly predictive upfront. But by the time you get to three months or longer, there's a mean relative prediction error of up to 17%. So it started to deviate quite drastically from the expected um, measured AUC. Now, since these patients were on cyclosporin, that doesn't really account uh, towards KN because she is on tacrolimus. So with that, get your phones out. This is going to be coming up for our next question. Since she's on mycophenolate and tacrolimus, we're probably looking at the Pavinsky trial. Which of the following sampling strategies would yield the best predictive value to assess her exposure? Would it be A, a trapezoidal method with three points, B, a limited sampling strategy with one point, C, a limited sampling strategy with two points, or D, a limited sampling strategy with three points? All right, we got some answers coming in. So the correct answer would be D, a limiting sampling strategy with three points, because this is referring to the multiple linear regression calculator that Pavinsky and their team used to assess the AUC uh, in their mycophenolate chromis patients. The trapezoidal method with three points could give you a usable AUC, but with only three points, we run the risk of, depending on when those points are, you will either drastically over or underestimate your AUC. So there's a lot of risk of trying to get an AUC just by that and not using a standardized calculator. And then for B and C, the one and two points, uh, two points could be usable in a pinch, but the for, for this question, they do not yield the best predictive value to assess the CAN's exposure. So now we'll get the AUC, and we got to wait a little bit of time for these samples to come back. Once we get that AUC, what can it tell us? How can we use this going forward? So going all the way back to 1999, we have Van Gelder and their team did an early analysis uh, based on different uh, AUCs. So they took a total of 150 patients split them up into three target groups, noted as the low, intermediate, and high intensity groups. And this is based on AUCs of 16.1, 32.2, and 60.6 respectively. And they measured them over time to see their primary endpoint of biopsy-proven rejection at six months. And what they found was at six months, the low intensity group had a significantly higher rate of biopsy-proven acute rejection, with 14 out of 51 patients having a rejection compared to seven and six in the intermediate and high-intensity groups, respectively. So kind of with along the lines of what we're thinking, lower exposure, increased risk of rejection. Makes sense. They also did a secondary analysis based on the safety endpoints. And what they noticed is there was a higher rate of early withdrawal, gastrointestinal side effects, particularly diarrhea, and leukopenia in the high intensity group. Meanwhile, in the, in the low and intermediate groups, there were very similar rates of side effects with a just a slight uptick in withdrawals in the in intermediate intensity group. So this kind of should start framing like, okay, the highs and the lows, maybe there's something here going on. And when they looked at the side effects too, as a post hoc analysis, they noted that the diarrhea and GI side effects 
could be due to the actual dose itself. So not something related to the exposure, but just a higher dose and local toxicities upon absorption could be creating those side effects. So what can be causing the leukopenia and other systemic-based side effects? Well, the working theory is actually based on the mechanism of action. So in most cells, we have the two different pathways to DNA and RNA production, and therefore proliferation. So on the top, you'll see starting with guanine going to guanosine, using the hypoxanthine guanine phosphoribosyl transferase. This is the salvage pathway. And on the bottom, we have inosine getting turned into guanosine via inosine monophosphate dehydrogenase. This is known as the de novo pathway. Mycophenolic acid preferentially inhibits the IMPDH. So they'll knock out the de novo pathway, leaving salvage pathways our only option. But since most cells have both of these, why are they not knocking out all cells? The reason is most cells can adequately utilize their salvage pathway if their de novo one is knocked out. B and T cells, though, are not able to use the salvage pathways adequately. So when this gets knocked out, they will not be able to proliferate as well. That wasn't enough. We have another way to select for B and T cells. So mycophenolic acid actually has a five-fold preference for a subtype of IMPDH called IMPDH2. And this is primarily found in, you guessed it, active B and T cells. So since we have now not only a preferred enzyme being targeted, but also cells that cannot use a secondary pathway, we, that's where we can see these drastic leukopenias and other side effects associated with the loss of white blood cells. So that kind of explains our side effect profile. We have a good idea of dose and its GI side effects. Leukopenia infection, probably due to um, the AUC or the exposure. So now we have this lovely middle range here. Not a lot of rejection, not a lot of side effects. And if you note the AUC from day, at day 11 was an average of about 30. The AUC at week 20 was about 55. This was, happened to be a crazy coincidence, but it's very interesting that this range, as a spoiler alert, will become our goal for AUC ranges moving forward. So with this, let's quickly create a roadmap based on those uh, changes over time profiles that we had earlier on. So we're trying to create a little cheat sheet for ourselves going forward. We have our goal of 30 to 60. If we're below an AUC of 30, will be an increased risk of rejection, which has been shown to have a statistical significance related to exposure. As we get above 60, we run the risk of maybe having toxicity, but definitely not having any extra benefit towards rejection. So it's this question of if we run higher, is it really worth it? Do we need to do that? And considering that, now if we follow these levels, we have this understanding. Will following and adjusting and targeting a particular AUC improve outcomes? It's kind of the golden question of medicine. And thankfully, we have a few randomized controlled trials to look at for this. I will say up front, a lot of them actually did not have great compliance. So the two I'll be talking about today had much better compliance with following an AUC-driven protocol and are worth having consideration going forward for using AUC-driven therapies. The first one being Apomiger. This was a one-year multicenter trial. The background was done on cyclosporin, not tacrolimus. So that's one thing to kind of keep considered. They used the Bayesian calculator I brought up earlier. This is actually part of the team that create, developed that Bayesian calculator. So they made sure to validate it for this patient population. And overall, these patients were at a low risk for rejection. 
Their primary endpoint was a treatment failure composite, which is based on death, any acute rejection, biopsy proven acute rejection, graft loss, or a withdrawal of micro or a discontinuation of mycophenolate. And what they found was the composite endpoint of treatment failure was significantly lower in the concentration controlled group. But when we dig a little bit deeper, not all the points were significant. In particular, there was only one death in each group. So this was not a statistically significant or clinically significant difference. However, when we look at acute rejections, whether it's subclinical or biopsy proven reje acute rejection, we see a significantly lower rate of rejection in the concentration controlled group. And this makes sense based on what we talked about. Like if we follow an AUC, we should be reducing rejection. To add to that, they kind of confirmed this idea by looking at within the first three months for both groups, who were the patients that were getting rejections? If they had seven patients had an AUC less than 30, three happened to have an AUC between 30 and 45, and no one had a rejection if their AUC was above 40 in this early three-month period. Further driving home that AUC matters when it comes to rejection. And like with the Van Gelder trial in 1999, they looked at side effects to make sure that they weren't driving doses too high or causing unnecessary risk. What they found was between the two groups, there was actually a very similar rate of side effects. The only difference being a herpes increase in herpes virus infections in the concentration controlled group, which is interesting given that other opportunistic infections were at about the same rate between the two groups. It was just this one was isolated to be higher, but all other side effects were pretty similar. So this kind of makes us start to question, why is that? If we're targeting AUC, shouldn't these be lower? Like with most study analyses, let's dig a little bit deeper into this data. So of course, we're gonna get a whole lot of numbers and we have to try and navigate what this all means. The first part I would like to point out is that in the concentration controlled trial, one of the biggest accomplishments they had was getting more patients at a therapeutic range of above 30. So starting at day 14, they had almost 70% of patients at a therapeutic range of greater than 30. Versus in the fixed dose trial, only about 30% of their patients were at an a, a AUC greater than 30. This trend continued all the way through month six, with month six having 75% of patients in the concentration controlled group being above that AUC of 30, and about 60% of those patients in the fixed dose group being at above an AUC of 30. Looking at their specific AUC ranges, which is kind of what we're wanting to look at too, is can we tighten this down, decrease that interpatient variability? There's not a drastic change in this study necessarily, but there is a decrease in that AUC, which is what we would hope for if we're doing an AUC-driven therapy. And conversely, the doses in the concentration-controlled group had a, had a higher standard deviation than the dose range in the fixed-dose group, which again makes sense. If we're targeting a dose, we're going to try and keep that dose as close to that dose as possible. If we're targeting a patient's exposure and individualizing it, we shouldn't care what the dose is necessarily. We want it to fit them. And the last note on this is in months one and three, there was 14 and 21% respectively of the concentration controlled group were, out above, were above an AUC of 60. Point this out because in this study, they did not time, they did not show a time reference of when certain side effects occurred. So this generates a thought or a question that maybe this could explain some of the increased side effects as well as maybe this is where some of those extra herpes infections came in. Because like we talked about higher AUC, increased exposure, increased risk of leukopenia and infection. This is not statistically connected in any way, but this is an interesting thought when we're trying to apply this to our patients moving forward. 
The second study, very similar background overall, and crazy enough, same group. So they came back a few years later, redid a study, and this time they called it the adjusted group versus the fixed dose group, slight group name change for some reason. And their primary endpoint this time was just a three-month composite of biopsy-proven acute rejection and subclinical acute rejection. So they didn't focus on any of the other endpoints that were involved in the previous composite. But what they actually found was a numerically higher rate of rejection in the adjusted dose group. This was not statistically significant, but from a clinical perspective, this is interesting. Expanding it out to a year, this trend continued with subclinical actually bouncing out to eight and eight in each group, but biopsy proven acute rejection was 31 out of 126 of the adjusted dose patients versus being 18 out of 121 of the fixed dose patients. This was again, not statistically significant, but this does raise a clinical concern that we're having increased race, rate of rejection. And the last part being adverse effects, again, an increased rate. So what's happening that this adjust, adjusted dose group is having worse outcomes overall in this study? The one, point, one side effect we can explain is increased risk of cytomegalovirus infections. The adjusted dose group actually had about double the amount of at-risk patients for cytomegalovirus, being what's called donor positive or negative, which comes with a higher risk of CMV, which kind of matches our rates of infection in this case. So we can explain that one. The rest of it is kind of interesting. So just like on our last one, I feel like the, the numbers deeper in this have a story to tell, and they surely do. So right away, the first thing that we want to notice is the adjusted dose group started with 3,000 milligrams a day versus the fixed dose group started with 2,000 milligrams a day. This is important because when we try to say that, oh, more of the adjusted dose group was therapeutic early on, it's now hard to say, is this be due to that higher dose or due to us following an AUC. And this claim gets muddied even more when we find out that over 50% of almost 60% of the adjusted dose group had to empirically reduce their doses because of side effects. They did not have a chance to have their uh, doses adjusted by AUC. Versus the fixed dose group had about 40% of their doses adjusted by empiric changes. And while this may not seem like a big jump, it is enough to start considering that maybe this higher dose yields more side effects, and therefore we shouldn't be starting with it, even if we get patients therapeutic early on. Because like we saw in apomiger, we got them pretty therapeutic pretty quickly. And we kind of see the effects of that in that we don't see any AUC range adjustments until weeks 26 and 52. So at this point, the adjusted dose group at both week 26 and 52 had a standard deviation of about 15 for the AUC versus the fixed dose standard deviations were 20 and 21 respectively. Prior to that, the AUCs were actually quite similar, but this could be explained by the empiric dose reductions early on with that adjusted dose group, where we don't have the opportunity to truly follow our concentration controlled or exposure-based trials. So taking this from a higher level, let's look at the two studies side by side. Same group, same background, but different results. They both had high compliance rates, especially in comparison to the other literature available. Apomiger did have a higher compliance rate at about 85% versus Opera's was about 70%. So that could be one part to explain the difference here. To our argument, both uh, dose 
both dose approaches got more people therapeutic faster, which is our goal. We don't want them to reject early on, and we don't want them at the AUC greater than 30. However, the way Opera went about it was at higher dose upfront, which created more potentially created more problems. They both got a tighter AUC, which would make sense when we're driving something by AUC as opposed to a fixed dose, kind of confirming that our methodologies are doing what we would expect them to do. And now we start to get some bigger differences. Apomiger did have a benefit versus Opera did not. But as we're talking, the Opera one had a lot of other factors that maybe were muddying this water and making it hard to fully determine the impact of an AUC-driven protocol. And then one of the last ones is they were both low risk for rejection populations. And looking at the patient populations, Opera was arguably a little bit lower risk, but nonetheless for both of them, this maybe isn't the population either that would benefit the most from this AUC-driven therapy. So with that, who would benefit from this? So if somebody's actively in a rejection, they would benefit from monitoring, not necessarily to address the current rejection, but to make sure we don't have future rejections going forward. Because maybe this is a factor of why they're in this rejection. Because we, we're already in a rejection. We can't turn around from that. What we can do is prevent further ones. And maybe this is a factor. If somebody's experiencing toxicities, right away we should check an AUC, see if they're at a super therapeutic level and if we need to scale back. We could also even do something of, you could empirically reduce in this case, but then use AUC to follow up since they have a history of going too high. In either case, when they experience toxicities, monitoring now can be a, their best friend. Classically, drug adherence, if you're, especially if it's a pediatric population and you're questioning drug adherence, this is a great way just to try and assess where they might be at. And then, like we talked about earlier, we have a very complicated pharmacokinetic profile of mycophenolate. So if they're at the extremes of weight, if they are of an ethnic origin that would alter their pharmacokinetics, if they have liver dysfunction or experiencing long-term standing like chronic kidney disease, these might be situations where we want to start measuring the AUC a little bit more frequently. In the case of infection, if it's something like sepsis that's really severe, just as a clinical note, we would want to hold the dose entirely just to make sure the patient can clear the infection. But going forward, this could be a monitoring tool to make sure they don't get those high levels again and decrease that risk of further infection. And then in an ideal world, yes, this would be a regular assessment. That's what we would like to see. So talking with people, you'll ask, okay, is this actually going to work in real life? Because this sounds like a lot of this might be too good to be true things. Well, one group that's been doing calculators for years now had 3, 000, over 3,300 patients send in more than two AUC requests. And then they would propose a dose adjustment to the providing to pr the provider team. And what they found is that when those proposed dose adjustments were applied, 72 to 80% of the patient's AUCs ended up being within our range of 30 to 60, with a variability of about 30 to 40%. Versus when they did not uh, follow that dose adjustment, the AUCs were only within range 39 to 57% of the time, with a variability of up to 70%. So as we can see, when we follow this in the real world, which we live in the real world, we can start to see benefits of tightening down these ranges in a larger scale. So our AUC comes back for KN, it's a 20. So she's having a rejection, her AUC is low. This might be an explanation. So based on the calculations we did behind the scenes, we'll increase her dose in this case from 250 twice a day to 500 milligrams twice a day. But now that we're doing this, what would be a monitoring plan for her? How often should we check mycophenolate? 
And a good way to look at this is to look at what the other studies did in their monitoring plans. So with Van Gelder, they had a, a lot of monitoring up front with up to four um, monitoring points within the first month and then doing about one month until month five and then month six, the end of the trial. April Miger, which ran for a year, had uh, two uh, levels within the first month and then from month one on, they did every of every month and then a month from month three, they waited three months to month six and then waited another six months until month 12. So they did a very tapered down approach. Then Opera follows something very similar, um, but this makes sense because they were the same group. So with that, we do see some similarities in that we should do one measurement in the first week, one at the second week, and starting from month one and on, start measuring every one to three months. Because once we get mycophenolate therapeutic, as we saw in the intrapatient variability, it really shouldn't be changing that much for each patient. But this is a good way to kind of keep them in check and make sure they're not going too high or too low. We're going back to our patient, KN. We're going to increase our dose, and we want to develop a monitoring plan for her. So get out our phones. What monitoring plan would you put into place for her? So would you want to reach, A, would you want to recheck her AUC in three days? B, would you want to recheck her AUC in a month? C, would you want to recheck her AUC in one year? Or D, do you not want to recheck her AUC at all? All right, as the answers roll in, the correct answer here would be recheck the AUC in one month. So answer B, A or a, checking an AUC in three days is not the most practical in this case because I was, as we said earlier, mycophenolase half-life is about 17 hours. So it's gonna take it about a week just to balance out. So the earliest we can consider is a week to two weeks, but given that she has a rejection and things need to kind of settle down before we see her again, one month is not unheard of. And then following the other trials, she's already passed the initial intrapatient variability phase post uh, transplant. So now we can kind of expect her to have a slower moving target instead of earlier on. Rechecking in one year, uh, that would potentially just put us back where we are now. We just kind of change her dose and see you in a while because she came back after four months. So if we let her, let her alone for a year, we may not see any changes. And then do not recheck an AUC. This is a practice that is still being currently used, but I would argue that we should be checking our AUC since we have evidence that her AUC was low and she experienced an acute rejection. This is, we end up telling the team, we're gonna check in in a month, expecting her dose to stabilize in a week or two weeks. So as we leave here today, just to summarize our final comments, our target for mycophenolic acid really should be an AUC of 30 to 60, whether they're on cyclosporin or tacrolimus. And this has been brought up as well by Bergen and team uh, with a consensus guideline on therapeutic drug monitoring of mycophenolate in a variety of patients. In terms of monitoring, a potential timeline, especially once they discharge from the hospital, would be to measure an AUC every one to three months with evidence showing up to one year. You could go longer, but our studies have not gone beyond one year to really show efficacy or to allow us to assess that just yet. Then in terms of formulations, we focus primarily on mycophenolate mofetil today. The reason for that being, we don't have a lot of data for mycophenolate sodium. Mycophenolate mofetil has kind of been the preferred formulation for a variety of reasons. So that's the one that we have been going with so far. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. 
Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.